morning. We just got back from uh, vacation in Washington State, and the sun was out, which was a surprise. The sun doesn't come out much in Washington State. It was uh, hot there uh, in the low to mid-80s, so we heard people complaining and spoken about how hot it was, and if they only knew, they only knew uh, Texas heat, which I love, by the way. But it was good. It was good to see our church family. It was good to see uh, my parents. It was good to see Sarah's family and stay with them. And, and it was such a delight to, to see again the uh, church from where we came. And, and that was a real delight. But I missed you. I missed being here. I missed being with you, our uh, new church family. And I'm grateful for you. And, and again, I just want to uh, publicly commend you all. Um, you know, as I reflected to my church back home, my former church back home, what used to be my home, uh, I was able to brag about you and, and just to share that, that you have done so well during this whole uh, virus thing. Um, you, uh, as soon as we started doing classes on Zoom, you all signed up, you were all there, you were all present. I literally have not heard one complaint from you. I know that it is easy to complain, I'm sure you have complained, but you have not grumbled against anyone. I have not heard you grumble about this, it just really seems like you were trusting the Lord and I'm just so grateful for that. Uh, the elders and I are just so grateful for you trusting the Lord in and through this. And um, Again, this is, a, this is a good season for us. This is a God-ordained season where He is calling us to, to trust in new and different ways that we've never had to. And one of the thoughts I had is that you know, we, we want the old normal. Right? We, we want what we have, but just to put things in perspective, even if things tomorrow, even if things today go back to the way they were, that's still not the normal that should be. Because even if the virus completely goes away overnight, we're still in a fallen world. We're still in a world filled with evil. And we'll still be awaiting the return of Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom and make all things be truly the way they ought to be. That is our hope. So keep praying, church. Keep praying just that the church, our church, would be sustained and strengthened and, and that there would not be divisions. That, 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 I mean, things like this are a strategic opportunity for division and we want to stay strong and healthy. And so just keep praying. Praying for the leaders to have wisdom and uh, pray for the well, church as a whole to, to grow in strength and delight and joy in Christ through His Word. But I want to begin by talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. And the thing about sanctification is that it's kind of a funny thing. Isn't it? And what I mean is that the process of being made holy, the painful carving of our lives into the image of Jesus Christ is, is kind of a funny thing, and it raises three questions that I think we really, really need to answer this morning. Three questions of sanctification raises that we really need to answer. Question number one. What does sanctification prove? What does it prove? I mean, why is it such a big deal to God that we keep the rules? Question two. Why does sanctification matter? I mean, in the scheme of eternity, is my own personal pursuit of holiness going to accomplish anything in the scheme of eternity? Why does this matter? Question three. Why is sanctification a painful process instead of just automatically all at once? 
I mean, why did God ordain this to be a, a fight to the death and a grueling process that happens over my lifetime? I mean, why God doesn't why doesn't God just flip a switch and make us a glorified human being all at once, all at the same time? These are questions that we need to get a handle on, and here are the answers, one by one. Number one. What sanctification proves is that there is something more satisfying than sin. And why sanctification matters, number two, is because it demonstrates that God actually changes and transforms people's lives. And number three, why sanctification is a process and not all at once at the same time, is because the moment-by-moment moment dependence upon God or His power to change us reveals His glory in ways we never otherwise would have experienced had He sanctified us all at once. And you see what Psalm 119 contributes to the discussion. What Psalm 119 tells us is that what a holy life requires. Get this now. What it takes to live a holy life that puts Jesus Christ on display are two fundamental properties. You see, to be sanctified, to be made holy, you need two things. Number one, you need sovereign power from God, and you need supreme pleasure in God. That's what you need for sanctification. You need supreme pleasure in God. You need sovereign power from God. Those two ingredients bake the cake of a holy life. And what Psalm 119 really wants you to know is that everything you need, all of the power, all of the pleasure you need for life change and transformation is found precisely in and through the sacred text. That's what Psalm 119 contributes to the discussion. And that's why we're doing this series on Psalm 119, because the Bible isn't just some book that governs our morals. Psalm 119 tells us that the Word is a portal to the very power and presence of God Himself. Psalm 119, you know, is a 176-line poem. And every single line in that poem is about one solitary subject, the supremacy and the centrality and the absolute sufficiency of the Word of God. Think about this. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible, which means that God is communicating through His Word that the most important thing in life is His Word. Psalm 119 is 176 reasons why the Word of God should have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. And among those 176 reasons is the fact that all the power and all the pleasure you need for life change and transformation is found precisely in You see, the reason why life change matters, and this is very important, the reason why life change and transformation matters, it's very carefully to me, is because there's a world out there disillusioned and in despair, blind and dead and damned and helpless, just as we ourselves once were before God saved us. And what they really need to know, what they really need to know is that God has spoken. 
they need to see is that God radically changes people's lives. And what they need to hear is that a Savior has come. And that although God doesn't need us, and in fact is estranged from us because of our God-belittling sins, He has made a way for us to drink from the river of His delights through Jesus Christ. Don't you see? Life change matters. Because it is the apologetic proof that a Savior has come and radically transforms people's lives. And all the power you need, and all the pleasure you need for life change and transformation is found right here through the means of the sacred text. So I want you to come power hungry this morning. Hungry for the power to do what God commands. I want you to be pleasure seekers this morning. Someone who seeks your highest pleasure in God through the means of the text. You see, it's not either or, it's both and. And that is the great win-win of the Word of God. So let's go to the text, shall we? Let's go to the text. I don't have half-sheets, apologies for that, but here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three compelling reasons. Three compelling reasons why the Scriptures are absolutely essential to a life that puts Christ on display. That's where we're going. Three compelling reasons why the Scriptures are absolutely essential to a life that puts Jesus Christ on display. And so compelling reason number one. Number one, the unconquerable power supplied by God's Word. You need the unconquerable power supplied by God's Word. Because you know, you know just as well as I do, that one of the perennial questions asked in every age is how can men, and young men in particular, live holy and blameless lives? Right? Because let's be totally honest, lust, sexual lust, an issue. But you understand this has not just been an issue in the age of the internet. This has been a topic of conversation among God's people for centuries and centuries. And no doubt every generation asks the exact same question. How possibly can a man, a young man, keep his way pure? And we know they ask that question because that is the very question of the psalmist in verse 9. Look at the text. He says, how shall a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by keeping it according to your word. Notice the nature of the question, what he's really asking. How do you slaughter the beast of lust, and how do you taste the pleasure of a holy life? How do you actually be holy instead of just merely wanting to be holy? How can your conscience be as clean as your internet history is another way to ask the question. And when the poet says, how can this happen? He's not asking out of curiosity or despair. Rather, he is asking a rhetorical question for which he already knows the answer. You see, he has undeniable evidence for how men, and young men in particular, can live holy lives free from the noose of sexual lust. See, he doesn't believe in sexual addiction the way it's currently defined. Because the way it's currently defined, I'll just have you know, 
and believed by many Christians is profoundly unchristian. There's no Bible or Christ in it. I mean, sexual addiction is generally understood to be this incurable malady rooted in the chemical and biological makeup of a man or, or found in wounds in their past for which there is no cure and therefore simply just assume that failure and unbroken patterns of lust are inevitable and incurable and therefore at some level excused and tolerated. This will not do, says the Pope doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to throw in the towel of sexual lust. Why? Because, because God has not left us without arms. Listen carefully. God has not imposed a standard for which he hasn't also provided the very means to keep that standard, namely his word. Because that is the question, isn't it? How can a man, a young man, or anyone else for that matter, how can they keep their way pure? How can you get into the ring and go to war against the deepest temptations in your life and emerge as the victor? And he's got an answer to the question. The question that has plagued concerned moms for their teenage sons for centuries and the answer he directs back to God's precepts. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to your word. There it is. The answer to the perennial struggle of young men from every age, namely how to live a holy life unstained by sexual lust. And the answer, the only answer on the list is that you keep your life according to God's word. Which sounds crazy, right? How can this be? How can words on a page actually do anything, transform anything about anybody's life? I mean, this just doesn't make sense. Oh, but it does make sense. It does make sense because we're not just talking about a piece of literature here. We are talking about something utterly unique in the history of the world. We're talking about a portal. We're talking about a gateway. We're talking about a way to access the sovereign power and presence of God because that's exactly what the scriptures are. This isn't just some book. This is an encounter with the living, all-satisfying God through the words on the page. And so the implication then is, if a man longs to drink from the springs of holiness, if a man longs to walk down the path, fear-filled purity, and he should want to do that, then there has to be a particular kind of relationship to this Word. And the relationship to this Word entails nothing less than a desperate, tenacious, IV drip-line relationship to this Word that clings to it not merely as something that's true, but as a means of survival. Which means what? I mean, what? What does this even look like to have a, an IV drip line relationship to the world? What, what does this even mean or look like? Well, you play pinball, I'm sure. And the point of pinball, I guess, is to keep the 
silver ball as present as possible? Is that the point of the game? I don't know. I guess. It seems like the, the whole point is to keep the ball as present as possible. If you want to win, you got to keep the ball constantly on the board, reacting to every situation, making every effort to sustain the presence of the ball. And that is precisely what the poet means when he says to keep your life according to God's word. You see, to keep your way pure, the word of God has got to be pinballing around in your head all day long. If you want to win the war with sexual sin, you have got to keep the word present in your mind, reacting to every situation, reacting to every temptation with the power of the text. It's called meditation. It's exactly what Christ meant in John 15, 7, when he said that the word of God must abide in you. Understand this, to unlock the purifying power of the sacred text. You must read the Word. You must remember the Word. And in real time, you must recall the Word and rely upon the power of the Word. That's what the psalmist is after. That is the secret to sexual lust. So here's the question. Men, young men, everybody else, how are you doing how are you doing with sexual lust right now, even at this very moment? Because, all, because although it kind of feels like it, that this is not the unpardonable sin. It's not. And here's the thing, not only is there forgiveness, but in Christ there is victory for you. Did you see it? All the power over sin that Christ purchased with his death, listen carefully, is mediated to you precisely through the sacred text. I mean, you can have what Christ purchased. It is literally there for the taking. But you have got to have an IV triple line relationship to the Word to make that happen and to access the power over sin. That is guaranteed. And you see, one of the things that makes me appreciate the psalmist so much is how blood and guts honest he was. You see, this is not some pompous Pharisee who never had a struggle in his life. No, as we look through Psalm 119, it becomes very, very clear that this man lived in the trenches of life just like you and I. Just like you and I. This is a man who had a profound sense of his own propensity to drift from God as the treasure of his soul. And so look what he says in verse 10. He says, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Which is a bold claim. I have sought God with all my heart. Have you, have you sought God with all your heart? I have sought God with all my heart, he says. And, and notice that he declares his own radical devotion to God himself. With everything that I possibly am, I have sought you, God. And just so you know, this all your heart language, this comes straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, verse 29, you will find God when you seek him with all of your heart. Chapter 6, verse 5, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart. Chapter 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask of you except to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with
all of your heart. And the poet says, I have done that. I live that. Which doesn't mean he never sins, but it just means that he has legitimately pursued God as the highest treasure of his soul. You see, what some might call radical fanaticism, what some might call extremism, the psalmist understands to be the logical implications of having Yahweh as your God. So my question for you is, is that your understanding also? Is that your understanding also? What I mean is, do you understand that the only logical implication of your salvation is radical devotion? What I'm asking is, do you understand that faith in Christ, the life of faith in Christ, is not merely that you get forgiveness, and then you just go on your merry way, but that you become a slave of the one who bought you with his blood. Not that he treats us like a slave, but we are one nevertheless. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. So the question is, do you seek Him? Do you love Him? Do you pursue Him with all of your heart? Or alternatively, the question could be asked, has the cold hand of apathy taken a hold of your life? Have you grown comfortable with that tragic choose-your-own-Christianity? That customized, self-served version of the faith that fits your own convenience. Because let me just tell you right now, if that's where you're at, it's very sobering here, if that's where you're at, if you have sort of this casual, loose, detached, emotionless, I've always been a Christian and Christ is not really that interesting to you kind of faith, if that's where you are at, you are about two steps away and just a couple years away from total apostasy. And I'm not talking about people who struggle and fight here. Because that's normal. That's good. That's real Christianity. That's normal Christianity. I'm talking about people who approach Christ with a casual indifference. And you can tell that you do or don't do that by the way that you approach His Word. You see, how you feel about and respond to the text is the barometer of how you feel about God Himself. But just in case you thought the psalmist was a self-righteous, snobby jerk, we see the truth of the matter in the second half of verse 10. Look what he says. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. It's interesting, isn't it? He had, in all sincerity, truly sought Yahweh with all of his heart. This is a godly man here, probably one of the godliest men in the history of the world. And yet, listen very carefully, he understood that the power of his seeking lied not within himself, but on the sovereign, sustaining power of God himself. You see, that's why he follows, I have sought you with do not let me wander from you. Why? Because he knew. He gets it. The Christian life is not like riding a bike. The training wheels of grace never come off. You have to understand. 
and our fidelity and faithfulness to Yahweh is not dependent upon the strength of our seeking, but on the strength of the one being sought. This man had no illusions about his personal ability to seek Yahweh as his treasure. Although fully responsible to live for God's glory, he understood nevertheless that the power to do that very thing had to come from God himself. You see, he knew, he knew that by himself, on his own, all he was was prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, which is why he cries out, Do not let me wander from your commandments. And so my question for you is, do you pray this way? Do you pray this way? Do you feel the same urgent desperation and dependence upon God for His power to keep you from drifting into an ocean of apathy and disobedience? Do you pray this way? Because you can, and you should, and you must. And I don't know if you've ever heard of alchemy. Alchemy, I don't know if you know what that is. There, this used to be a thing, though. See, scientists in the Middle Ages, they had this really, really great idea that if they came up with just the right elixir, if they came up with just the right process, that they could, they could transform ordinary, normal, regular metals that didn't have much worth or value, like lead and iron and steel, and if they applied just the right chemical process, they could transform those ordinary metals into pure, polished Gold. Did you know that was a thing? That's a pretty sweet idea, but unfortunately that is scientifically impossible. However, I've got good news for you. There is such a thing as spiritual alchemy. Spiritual alchemy. In other words, the rusty, corroded desires that lurk in our souls for things which are forbidden can be transformed into the polished gold of purity. And how that happens, get this now, is through the holy chemistry of meditation upon the sacred text. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, In my heart I treasure your word. Why? So that I will not sin against you. And do you see? Did, did you see the holy chemistry of a holy life? Did you see the holy ingredients for a sanctified life? There are four ingredients for a holy life named in the text. Number one, you have got to have the right action. To be holy, to have the polished, solid gold of purity, you have got to have the right action. Look what he says. In my heart I treasure, treasure your word. Treasure is the operative word here. And I know your version might say store, but the word literally means treasure. This is not the kind of word that you use to describe storing junk in the attic. This is the kind of word you use to have something so valuable and sacred and set apart that it deserves its own reserved location because to leave it on the counter or put it in a drawer somewhere would be to profane it. We must treasure it. But number two, second ingredient, you have got to have the right object. You see, the solid gold of polished purity, you have got to treasure the word. He says, in my heart I treasure your word. And number three, you've got to have the right location. 
See, it's not enough just to read the Word. It's not enough to merely know some right things about the Word. You have got to savor the Word and get it absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul, which is precisely what the poet means by heart. In my heart I treasure your Word. And what he means is that the Word of God is memorized. What he means is the Word of God is internalized. What he's talking about here is the ancient art of meditation. And what is meditation? But the careful, slow, rigorous reading of the text where you read it again and again and again and again until you master it. Or should I say, until it masters you. But number four, if you want authentic life change and transformation you need number four you have got to have the right purpose you've got to have the right reason and purpose for why you're reading the word look at the second half of verse 11 he says in my heart i treasure your word why for what purpose to what end what is the reason that he gives i treasure your word in my heart here it is so that so that i will not sin against you. This is incredible. Because although good magicians, although good magicians never <coughs> reveal their secrets, good theologians always do. And here, this theologian just revealed one of the deepest secrets about sanctification ever revealed in the history of the world, namely, that it takes loving something more than sin in order to not sin. It takes loving something more than sin in order to not sin. See, it takes treasuring the Word to have triumph over sin. It takes pleasure in the Word to have purity in your life. The more the Word is savored in the soul, the more that sin is slaughtered in your life. That's what he means when he says, I treasure your Word so that I will not sin against you. Don't you see? Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in Jesus Christ. Therefore, battle, weary, warfare against sin is fought in the trenches of a superior delight in Jesus Christ. In other words, when facing temptation, the question isn't really to ask, what is the moral thing to do here? Rather, the question is, what is it exactly that satisfies more? And the answer, the only answer on the list is Jesus Christ through His Word. Which brings us to compelling reason number two. Compelling reason number two, the uncontainable praise produced by God's Word. The uncontainable praise produced by God's Word. And you know just as well as I do that there are two activities that God demands of His people. And these are extremely difficult and challenging activities for us. Two things that God requires for us that are very difficult for us to fulfill. And these two things that God demands are... Praising God and proclaiming God. It's really difficult for us, aren't they? In other words, worshiping God and witnessing about God. These are really, really challenging for us because although we are required to do them, so oftentimes we just don't feel like doing those things. 
Am I right? We are called to worship and called to witness, but we, we just don't oftentimes want to do those things. The problem is we don't know how to kindle the passion of our souls so that we actually want to do those things in the way that God commands us to do them. And yet for that, the sacred poet has a solution. You see, he understands that the fires of worship and passion for God are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. And the proof is found in verses 12 and 13, but first in verse 12. He says, Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. Blessed are you. Teach me your statutes. Which is interesting, right? He just blessed God. That doesn't sound right, does it? We don't. We don't bless God. God is the one who's got to bless us. And so, what does it mean exactly for him to say to Yahweh that he is blessed? Because it sounds trite, but it's not. It's not that. See, what this is, is worship. What this is, is praise. To bless God is to prize him as the treasure of the soul. To bless Yahweh is the joyful declaration that Yahweh himself is the supreme blessing above and beyond all other blessings. The one who gives the blessing is the supreme blessing in the universe. And so to feel that and to know that and to believe that is the essence of what worship is. The epidemic of the human soul, however, that is that worship is not natural, it is profoundly supernatural. Because you knew that, right? You knew that, that, that worship, authentic worship, doesn't automatically come from you. It is not self-generated. You see, worship has to be generated and kindled and produced by something outside of ourselves. Authentic passion for God does not inherently come from you on your own. And so isn't it very interesting to you that the very next words out of the psalmist are these. Look at what he says. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. In other words, I worship you. I praise you. Here it is. Teach me your statutes. So what? What's the connection? What's the connection between the first and second half of the verse? What's the connection between blessing and prizing Yahweh and being taught by Yahweh? What's the connection? Because there is a connection, and the connection is this. All true worship and affection for Yahweh are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. That's the connection. He knows. He understands that supreme joy, for supreme joy and delight in God to be experienced, that the Word of God has to be encountered. The Word of God has to be enjoyed. The Word of God has to be savored. The Word of God has to be tasted. The Word of God has to be taught to Him. That's what. That's one of the things that the Word of God is there to do. To awaken our sleepy souls to the towering majesty of God. Because unless we see God, I mean really see Him, See him for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, unless we are captivated by God. We will drift into a cold, 
what I'm asking is, do you make known all of God's decrees, or are there some things of which you are ashamed and fearful to speak? Or if you bought into the cliche, which has zero foundation in the Bible, by the way, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Problem with that. Problem that where there are no words, there is no gospel. See, the gospel is not, oh, look at me. Look how nice, and look how moral, and look how obedient I am. That is not the gospel. That is Mormonism. That is damnation. Rather, the gospel is God is holy. God is angry. God is love. God sent Christ. Christ has died. Christ has raised. Christ is king. Repent and believe. That is the gospel. And so my point is very simply this. If you want to reach the world, if you meant what you said to me when you hired me, and you want to see lost people saved, and sitting in this congregation, there is but one way it's going to happen. And it's through you, the emissaries of the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring the unfathomable riches of the grace of Christ to lost people. Listen very carefully when I say this. To be a great evangelist, you don't have to be a great evangelist. All you have to do is get your soul warmed by the sacred text and it will produce in you the passion you need to proclaim the decrees of God to people in your life. That's it. Two compelling reasons why the scriptures are absolutely essential to a life that puts Christ on display, which brings us finally to compelling reason number three. Compelling reason number three, the unlimited pleasure contained in God's word. The unlimited pleasure contained in God's word. Because book nerds, such as myself, we have a thing called pleasure. Now, people who hate reading, I know you have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about pleasure reading, but there is such a thing as pleasure reading. That is, books we're not required to read, but we read them anyway because they bring great pleasure to the soul. And what's weird to me is that although we never seem to put Bible reading in the pleasure reading category, we totally should. We totally should. Because infusing deep profound, exalted, exhilarated pleasure in the soul is precisely what the text is there to do, and I'll prove it to you in verses 14 through 16. Look at the text. It's literally a buffet of biblical delight. He says, in the way of your testimonies, notice, I rejoice as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts. I look upon your ways. I myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And you can tell, can't you? Verses 
15 through 16 are all one unit of thought, and what connects these last three verses together are, is the joy and the pleasure and delight found in and contained in and produced by the Word. Because you see, one of the things the Word wants you to know is that the Word is not merely there for the extraction of data, but the experience of delight. The Word of God is not only the source of truth that defines our beliefs, but it is the very satisfaction that we crave in our souls. Look again at verse 14. He says, In the way of your testimonies, I rejoice as much as in all riches. Now, I know you heard the word joy because I set you up for that, but did you notice precisely what the poet said brought him his highest and deepest joy? What did he say? What did he say exactly? the text. What do you say exactly? Not just God's testimonies, but the way of God's testimonies. Meaning what? The way. The path. The course. What he's saying is, what your word commands me to do is the source of my deepest and highest joy. He's talking about application. He's talking about authentic life change and transformation produced in his life by the power of the Word. He loves to have his life changed, in other words. My question for you is, do you believe that's even possible? Do, do you think that God's Word really, actually, truly has the power to change you? Do you believe that long-standing struggles that you've never been able to conquer can lie in subjection to the text? Do you believe, do you believe that deeply embedded sin issues can be ripped from your heart and driven to their knees by the power of Christ? And furthermore, what I really want to know, do you believe that that right there is the secret to your deepest and highest joy? Do you believe that? Because look what he says at the end of verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I rejoice. How much? To what extent? How much pleasure exactly does the Word of God give you, my friend? And the answer that he gives is, as much as in all riches. All riches. Is he kidding? He is not kidding. He just revealed, he just revealed that having his life changed by the power of God's word brings more pleasure than if he won the lottery a thousand times over. Because you knew that, right? You knew that. I hope that a righteous life is not merely produced by the power of the will but by the superior delight that triumphs over the power of sin. You knew, I hope, that holiness is not the sacrifice of your joy, but is the fountain of your joy. <coughs> Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say, because so many Christians do not get what the psalmist understood, namely, that the holiness God demands contains the happiness you desire. 
The sanctified life to which you are called is the satisfied life for which you crave. Which is precisely what Christ means in Matthew 5, 6 when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. But notice verse 16. The psalmist does not finish meditating on the unlimited pleasure contained in God's word. Because look at the text. Notice what he, what he says. I to myself in your statutes. I do not forget your word. I mean, you know that, that living in a fallen world, too much of any one thing is never a good thing, right? Unrestrained indulgence is, is not a virtue to be pursued, but a terrible moral flaw to be avoided at every cost, right? Too much food, too much coffee, too much work, too much sun, too much sleep, Anything, too much of anything, even good things are either going to ruin you or they're going to destroy you. This is the one exception. Delight in God's Word is the one time when unrestrained indulgence is the highest moral virtue that could possibly be pursued. Literally, the Hebrew says, I delight myself. I delight myself in your statutes. In other words, I indulge myself. I intoxicate myself with the sober intoxication of your word. Because to this day, I can still remember with great clarity the mango lime cheesecake that I got from the Cheesecake Factory 10 <laughs> years ago in Seattle. Ten years ago, still remember, and the reason why is because the taste was utterly unforgettable. That the pleasure, and that's exactly the same thing here in the text, the pleasure of God's word tasted by the poet was literally unforgettable. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, I delight myself in your statutes. Notice the connection. I do not forget your word. I do not forget your word. Why? How could he? It was too appetizing. It was too delectable. It was too delightful. It was too satisfying. How could he forget? It's not that he had a good memory, but that he had tasted and seen that the word is good. His point is, when he says, I do not forget your word, his point is, the word was the pervasive influence of his life. Because we struggle with this, don't we? We have so many secular moments in our lives, do we not? So many words, so many thoughts, so many desires, so many cravings, not governed and shaped by God's Word. We make so many decisions and priorities for our lives, and we never even for a moment consider for a second what God has to say. That's what He means when He says, I do not forget your word. He's not going to live that way. 
every moment of his life, even the most private, secluded, secret moments of his life will be shaped and governed by God's word. You see, to experience the life change that the word guarantees, you have to alter your thinking about the relationship to God's word. Because when you were born, the umbilical cord was cut. Was it not? But you see, when you are born again, constantly and conscientiously and continuously clinging tenaciously to Christ through the umbilical cord of His Word. See, this is how the Bible wants you to use the Bible. And that is possible. That's only possible if it is the mango, lime, cheesecake to the taste buds of your soul. But here's my question. I close with how does the Word of God become that to us? How does the Word of God become something that's merely academic, that's something dry and sterile and intellectual, and how do we make it become mango lime cheesecake to the soul? How do we experience the kind of pleasure and joy about which the psalmist speaks? Because you noticed, didn't you? I skipped verse 15. But I didn't skip it. I saved it for last. Because in verse 15, the psalmist explains how to gain the joy and delight contained in the Word. And it has everything, listen carefully, it has everything to do with how you read the Word. Look at the text, look what he says. Here's how we access the joy and delight in the text. He says, I meditate on your precepts, and I look upon connection? You see, the fact that meditation, get this now, the fact that meditation is stuck in the middle between joy and delight is because meditation is how you access the joy and delight contained in the Word. Isn't that interesting to you? The Bible itself tells you how to read the Bible. And how to read the Bible is not like cooking something in a microwave. But rather it is the slow and steady crock-pot contemplation of the sacred text. Reading it again and again and again until your soul is awakened to what the text says. When you read the Bible like that, then you will be when you're happy in God above all things, then you will be holy. And that's why right goes the great win-win of the Word of God. Let's 
Christ, we need you so desperately. If Psalm 119 has done anything for me, for us, Lord, it is that it has, had, it has awakened our own sense of desperation and dependence upon you. Lord, we want to love you. You, you know that we are a well-intentioned people. And yet we are a weak people by ourselves, on our own. And so we need you, and that, and that is a request that you are glad to answer. You are a generous Savior. You are a generous Messiah. You are a benevolent King. And you love to provide for your people. You love to give them what they need to love you and serve you and live for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would alter our relationship to the text. Please help us to be a people of the Word. Help us to be a church of meditators, that our souls, that our souls would be richly indwelled by the Word of Christ. That we would be like Job. That we would treasure the words of your mouth more than our necessary food. That we would be able to say with Psalm 119, how sweet is your word, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So help us, Lord. Strengthen us, empower us, even this week, to read the text, not to check off some box as a to-do list, but to meet and engage and have an encounter with the living God. We ask for that in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Yeah.